0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is John Mason. Todd, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's uh, great to catch up with you, as we're able to do from time to time these days. In In an article in The Weekend Australian, you'll have to pardon one or two Australian references in my talk today, but in The Weekend Australian in December last year, Paul Kelly, a political commentator and writer, observed, People now assert their rights against established norms and institutions. They seek more control. Their distrust of institutions has escalated. And referencing a June 2016 USA Gallup poll, He pointed out that the poll revealed that in the 30 years, from 1985 through to 2016, confidence in big business fell from 32% to 18%. In newspapers, from 32% to 18%. In banks, from 51% to 27%. In the church and organized religion, from 66% to 41%, and in the Congress, from 39 to 9%. In short, Kelly wrote, the Western civilization is being eroded from within due to lack of confidence and respect in the ability of leaders and in institutions to discharge their responsibilities to the wider community. The causes are complex, he said multifaceted, and not easily resolved. And he further noted, the rise of a cult of individualism that threatens to entrench unhappiness at the heart of the democratic spirit, rules and norms must be modified to meet the latest claims of individual rights and self-realization. The needs of the individual are being enshrined as paramount And this recognition becomes the new morality. And we say, wow. And then we think a little more and we ask ourselves, how then should we live in such a changing world? And then secondly, what can I do to help people come to understand the God who created the world, the God who sent his one and only Son to save the world. Well, with those questions in mind, come with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, words that Todd has just read out. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. People in Jesus' day used salt for a number of reasons. They used it as we do today to bring out the flavor of food. But one of the main uses for salt in Jesus' day was as a preservative. In a period when there was no refrigeration salt was rubbed into the flesh of fresh meat to prevent it from rotting. And following this line of interpretation, Jesus is saying that his followers are to act as a preservative in the world, to slow down the decay. What then did Jesus mean? Well, the context of his words about salt and light hold the key. Jesus has in mind the radical lifestyle that he's just been spelling out in what we today call the Beatitudes, the first part of Matthew chapter 5. He's also got in mind what he has yet to say in his famous Sermon on the Mount that continues on in chapter 5 through chapter 6 and into chapter 7. But to come back to the Beatitudes, Jesus sets out there those who are the truly blessed people in life, people who have God's approval. He teaches that anyone who would follow him needs to undergo radical changes in their understanding of themselves and their relationship with God. And so, if I might be allowed to paraphrase, instead of feeling proud of our relationship with God, We need to understand our poverty, our need before God. We can't save ourselves. We're totally dependent upon what God has done for us out of the riches of his love for us. Instead of feeling indifferent towards unbelievers, we need to feel the pain of a world that is rejecting God. Instead of engaging in power play and plotting of the world in the cause of God's kingdom, we need to walk the tougher path of humility and service. And furthermore, we should hunger for truth and righteousness, show mercy, pursue purity of life and living, and work for peace but we also need to reckon on the reality that life won't always be easy for God's people. I think it was Angela Merkel, a few years ago, who remarked that Christians were the most persecuted people in the world. But we must never forget Jesus' encouragement to stay with him, whatever the cost, it's going to be worth it. These Beatitudes are radical words. They turn our natural approach to life inside out. One of our problems with them is that we can know the words so well that they easily slide off our tongue without disturbing us. And yet each one of those Beatitudes is revolutionary, calling, us, calling on us to toss out the lifestyle of an atheistic, Secular materialism or an insipid Christianity, or both. Now it's important to notice that Jesus is not saying here that morality or behavior saves people. None of us is good enough for that. He's talking to would-be followers who have in fact turned to Him in repentance. Genuinely saying, Lord, I know I have not honoured you as I ought. Please forgive me. And they've found his forgiveness. And in turn, they've found a new life and a new hope and a new joy in knowing Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, he is now setting out what he expects of his people a totally new lifestyle where his people become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. For men and women to stand against the dehumanizing elements of the marketplace, they need godly and good examples of how to live. They need salt to stop the rot of selfishness and greed. But this is only going to happen if God's people don't become insipid themselves. And that's why Jesus goes on to warn against the salt losing its saltiness. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, strictly speaking, salt can't, can't lose its saltiness. We learn from Chemistry 101 that NaCl is a stable compound. However, in the ancient world, salt was obtained more from salt marshes than the evaporation of seawater. There were many impurities in it. The actual salt could be leached out, leaving a substance that looked and tasted salty, but in fact was worthless. It was either tipped out on the road or put on the roof of flat topped houses where it was trodden in underfoot. But there's an interesting play on Jesus' words that his first hearers would have picked up. The word salt in Aramaic that Jesus spoke is tarpal. And there's a word very close to it. Tarpal, which means fool. Putting together what Jesus is saying here, he he is telling us, watch out, that you don't become insipid, wishy-washy followers and so make fools of yourselves. What a warning. If you call yourself a follower of mine, Jesus is saying, your life is going to be different. But the implication is, he is asking, is this in fact how other people see you? So let me ask, do you go to church, but your life remains unchanged? Is your lifestyle directed by the culture or by what you learn from the Bible? Are you a cultural Christian or a biblical Christian? Are you just as unforgiving, just as greedy, just as selfish as everyone else around you? Well, Jesus says... To each one of us, if you call yourself a follower of mine, let your life be transformed by my words, for you are the salt of the earth. If we turn to the letter of Paul to the Colossians, we get a little bit more help on the subject of what this image of salt might look like. Paul in chapter 4 of Colossians writes, Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. So we're all called upon to act wisely and graciously towards people we live and work with. And notice Paul expects us to cultivate conversations that are seasoned with salt. Salt here is a metaphor for sparkling and interesting conversations that can trigger questions about the deeper issues of life. Friends of mine take time each day to think about ways in which they can use news items, opinion columns, and films to spark conversations with people around them, perhaps around the water cooler. Well, let me tell you, it's also worthwhile taking time to develop your story of faith. And when people ask me to do this, I or how to do it, I simply suggest that they might like to take a, a clean sheet of paper, put a margin down the left-hand side, put the number zero at the top, and the number of their present age at the bottom and then think for a moment and identify three key things that have happened in your life that brought you to a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then write a paragraph about each and that'll fill up about that page. But you need to get that page of writing down to half a page. So that means doing some editing, doing some pruning, cutting it back to about half a page. Why do I suggest that? Well, because in the normal course of conversation, you can get about two minutes of opportunity. And in my writing, even on my computer, about half a page is worth about two minutes. So there I get my story down together. And then I recommend that you go and talk talk about it, tell your story to a very good friend who is a fellow believer and then ask them what they think. And if they're a good friend, they'll be honest and they'll help you with editing. Once you get your story right, down in under, just under two minutes, by the way, I was offered a, a challenge uh, to give my story in uh, less than two minutes on one occasion. In fact, here in New York, and one guy pulled out his watch and I gave it to me and he came and he said, you've, you've just done it. One minute, 58 seconds. But you see, that's that's what we have an opportunity. We get those opportunities. They come up, they pop up unexpectedly. In the course of normal conversation, people are usually interested and are willing to give you those that two minutes because it's your story And because it is your story, they can't deny it. It's happened. Well, in turn, we need to pray for opportunities to tell our story of faith. And let me tell you, you'll be surprised what the Lord does. People have come back and told me over and over again that within a week, And then in subsequent weeks, they've had remarkable, unexpected opportunities to tell their story of faith. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But he also says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all the house. Now, we don't think about uh, light and darkness so much these days. We can have light at the flick of a switch. But have you ever tried wandering around a house in the country on a dark night when there's no light? Darkness is blackness. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And there's something else we can notice here. Light is a metaphor for truth. Because we live in an age of relativism and tolerance, we easily lose the impact of this imagery. We don't easily comprehend the moral darkness of life around us, let alone moral darkness in our own lives. And part of the problem, of course, is that people around us insist that there are no absolutes. In an earlier age, In fact, not so long ago, we could point to the Ten Commandments and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But today, it's a different scene. Few leaders of society, few educators, would challenge the prevailing assumption that there is no morally binding objective authority or truth above the individual. So I come back to my earlier question Is there any hope of change? What what part can we play? We feel powerless. Well, verse 16 of Jesus' words read, "In In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Everything you are, everything you do, Jesus is saying to those who would follow him, must reflect all that I've taught you. For that's how others will come to see the mind and the will of God. It's not going to happen otherwise. And that's an awesome thought. We are all caught up in this challenge. No one who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ is exempt. No one is more important than another in this area. All of us as individuals are called upon to reflect the light of God in our lives to the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. It's important to recall the world in which Christianity was born. The first letter of Peter is addressed to people who were experiencing intolerable oppression. They had no opportunities in life. And yet in 1 Peter chapter 2 we read, "Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Though Peter speaks of his readers, both slaves and free, as resident aliens in this world, their lifestyle can draw others to God's truth. Abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And that, of course, is a reference to the desires of the hearts, of our hearts that are out of step with the Ten Commandments and Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like lies, false witness, anger, greed, theft, the lustful look, the adulterous relationship, anything that stands against the mind of God. And you must remember, there's people like you and me that God used to change the world in the first century, the second and the third century. And it didn't happen at the end of a gun or with swordplay. It happened as God's word was changing lives from the inside out. And people began to bubble over their faith into their conversations their words, their witness of their lives was changing lives and changing the world. So in our changing world, let's resolve by God's grace to play our part in his unfinished task of searching for and reaching the lost. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, wrote, Men and women despise religion. They hate it, and are afraid it might be true. The cure for this is just to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, he says, make it attractive. Make good men and women wish it were true and then show them that it is. And so we need to help one another identify the flaws of today's morality. We need to help others see the logical inconsistency of making tolerance the value that determines all values. That tolerance and moral objectivity can coincide. And what's more, we need to expose the lie that the center of truth is the self. We need to show to New York that we do not live in a world without moral compass bearings, in a world in which all p- opinions are as valid as each other whether we like it or not, when people come to know that we are Christian, they're going to look at us. For they want to know whether we are genuine, whether what we profess is true. For underneath all the cries for tolerance, the cries to do what it takes to get what I want, there's a deeper cry, which is a cry for help. And yet... Sad to say, all too often the lives of the Christian community reflect narcissism, the narcissism of our culture. Like lost sheep, we go astray, following the devices and desires of our own hearts, rather than heeding the voice of God. And so we fail to be salt and light So let's plan to confess our sins to God daily with truly repentant hearts and knowing the Lord's forgiveness, resolve by His grace to press on in the new life that He has given us. And so let's keep before us Jesus' plan that through the salt and the light of our lives, others will be drawn to find out about Him. Through the words of our lips, people will hear the good news and come to glorify God on the final day. Friends, every one of us has a part to play. Salt and light, the power of gospel living. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world.